invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture to our text for this morning, which is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. As we begin a new series through the book of Hebrews, a wonderful book that truly exalts Christ as Lord and Savior. And as we look at these few verses, I'm going to read through to verse 4 to complete uh, the sentence. There we read, Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. As we... And to look at the book of Hebrews, it's important to note that we do not know who the writer of Hebrews was, but we know very well the reason why he was writing. This letter was written before 70 AD, before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and it was written to, to Jewish Christians, to people who at one time were Jews, but had by this point, embraced Christ as Savior, and because of their newfound faith in Christ, they were being persecuted for their faith. Again, these were people who had at one time been Jews, and what happened was they heard the gospel, perhaps from the apostles or from those who followed the apostles and began to spread the word. And through this preaching of the word, they were converted to Christ. In fact, the writer in chapter 2, verse 3 says that this gospel was attested to us by those who heard, that this gospel of Christ was brought to them. And as a result of hearing the word, they turned and trusted in Christ. And so this is what we see in the book of Acts when we think about the persecution of those early Christians. We know from the book of Acts that after Pentecost, the gospel began to spread. Jerusalem, Judea, to the very ends of the earth. It began to spread far and wide. And the group of believers that we read about here in Hebrews were among the first of those who heard about Christ and trusted him for salvation. And as a result of that, as a result of their newfound faith, they also had newfound challenges. Because now these Jewish Christians, or sometimes they're called Hebrews, were now being persecuted for their faith in Christ. And what we read in Hebrews is that the persecution they were experiencing hadn't yet escalated to the point of them being martyred, of them being killed. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, the writer says that in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So they had not yet been persecuted to the point of death, but the struggles, the challenges, the difficulties 
the opposition that they were facing on a daily basis were still very real and very hard. We read the details of their suffering in chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. They are the writer to the Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. He writes, But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This is the type of opposition, of persecution, that the early Christians were facing. Now, on top of all this, they were also being kicked out of their familiar Jewish context and institutions, like the local synagogues and worship in the temple. They were basically being kicked out of everything that they knew to be familiar, the acceptance that they once experienced in the community, the job offers that once came pouring in now were no longer existent. They were being sidelined, marginalized, kicked out of their own communities. They were ultimately being persecuted by the very ones that they at one point at once uh, knew as their very fellow Jews and family members. In one instance, and one example of this, is that while Paul and Barnabas were preaching, we read in the book of Acts that the whole city gathered together, and then when the Gentiles heard their preaching, the Gentiles, we read, heard them, and they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But then we read that the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. This is in Acts chapter 13, verses 48 through 50. We see the persecution that those Christians faced at the hands of fellow Jews, of those with whom they once had fellowship. The persecution we read in in the early centuries of the church came not only from Jews, but also from the Romans, from the civil government. We know from church history that Christians were persecuted as early as 49 AD under Emperor Claudius, and then again in the 60s under Emperor Nero. And we know that the persecution under Nero was especially violent and bloody. They faced a very severe persecution. But in light, in light of this opposition, and in light of this persecution, what we see is that the Hebrew Christians were tempted to forsake Christ and return to Judaism, to leave Christ, to leave their newfound faith and confession in the Savior, and to return to what they had known to be familiar, to what was safe, to what was socially acceptable. This was their temptation. This was their great struggle, that because of their persecution, they thought, 
Well, I could just return to my old life, to my old faith, to my old belief, to my old practices, and not have to suffer in this way, not have to experience this persecution and this opposition. It would be so much easier if I, again, simply became a Jew and no longer professed Christ as Savior. They were being tempted to return back to that which to them, again, seemed more glorious, more powerful, and more socially acceptable. And so the writer to the Hebrew about the glorious Savior that we have in Christ. He writes and he exalts Christ above all else. And he shows them that to return to something other than Christ is to return to something that is less, something that has passed away. And that's what we see, loved ones, in the opening verses. I'm sure you noticed in our reading that Christ in these opening verses is lifted up And he is exalted as Lord and Savior, as as creator and sustainer of all of the universe. And in his writing, the writer to the Hebrews encourages and he exhorts these Christians. He exhorts them not by first pointing to their problems, but by first he exhorts them by, by, by taking their eyes off themselves and directing them to Christ. By making Christ look so glorious and so wonderful and magnificent that these Christians will take their eyes off themselves, off the persecution that they are facing, and direct their eyes upon Christ. The writer here is addressing a very practical need. He's addressing the need that all Christians have, the need to persevere in the faith, the need to keep on going on. And he doesn't, again, begin with a 10-point plan. He, He doesn't begin with therapeutic techniques, but what he does is he begins by teaching them deep theology. We might say deep Christology, by teaching them about the glory of Christ, the only Savior. And this is one of the primary ways, loved ones, that we will stay the course, that we will endure in the faith. Do you this morning want to stay the course? Well, then you are and I am to deepen our understanding of who Christ is. Do you need strength to make it in life? Then you don't need a 10-point plan and you don't necessarily need therapeutic techniques. What you need is theology, deep theology that will seep into your bones, cling to him. See, a superficial understanding of our faith is not enough to prepare you and me to face the troubles and the challenges of life. But it's, it's a deep understanding of Scripture and of the God revealed therein that will hold our anchor fast, that will keep us established in this life that will keep us from falling away. There's a a Peanuts comic strip that shows Lucy standing in front of a window, and outside the window, it's pouring rain. And she's looking out of this window at this downpour, and she says to Lioness, and you guys 
all know Linus as the theologian of the bunch. We all do. He's the one who, you know, at the Christmas special, who gives that, that speech as he recites from the gospel about the true meaning of Christmas. It's Linus. Lucy's there. Linus is next to her. And Lucy says to Linus, Boy, look at it rain. What if it floods the whole world? And Linus responds, It will never do that. In the ninth chapter of Genesis, God promised Noah that would never happen again, and the sign of the promise is the rainbow. And Lucy, now smiling, says, You've taken a great load off my mind. And Linus responds, Sound theology has a way of doing that. And that's something of what the writer to the Hebrews is conveying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's conveying this to his tired, persecuted, opposed, anxious audience. He's giving them, and he's giving us, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sound theology about Christ, deep theology that will help us keep on going on in the faith, that will help us to persevere by the grace of God. And the way he begins his letter is by concentrating his main ideas in these opening verses, verses that, as we saw, are rich with meaning. In fact, as you look at the outline of the sermon notes in the bulletin, I'm sure you've seen how extensive it is and how each of the points in the outline can easily lend themselves to a whole sermon. Hundreds of pages are devoted to these topics in systematic theology books. But this morning, I'm just going to highlight the main ideas in this outline because these are ideas, each of them, that are going to be developed in depth in the rest of the letter. The way the writer to the Hebrews begins is he begins by exalting Christ. He steps on the gas. And he doesn't let off the gas for the rest of the letter. He begins at that pace. Certain letters of Paul, Paul will change topics and will address different issues. The writer to the Hebrews, he exalts Christ, he begins that way, and he continues that way throughout his epistle. That is his focus. And so in a or of a, a longer document or book, and you know, The abstract is a paragraph that briefly summarizes the main ideas of the dissertation. It gives the reader a general idea of the content of the dissertation. It's basically saying, this is what it's about. If you want to know more, you have to read the whole thing. These opening verses of Hebrew thing. And so this morning, it's a summary of the book of Hebrews in these few verses. That's what these opening verses are, a concentrated summary of the deep, sound theology of this whole letter, this letter that, again, exalts Christ as the full and final fulfillment of the older covenant. These are ideas that we're going to flesh out more and more as we study the book of Hebrews in the coming months. And so we begin with verse 1. Verse 1 that points to Christ as the final prophet. We read there, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers 
by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. What we see in these opening verses is that the author shows us three contrasts or or three differences. When God spoke, he shows us that in the past, God spoke long ago through prophets. Now, by contrast, he is speaking in these last days. Then he explains to whom God spoke. In the past, he spoke to our fathers, and now he speaks to us. And then he explains how God spoke at many times and in many ways by the prophets, and now he is speaking to us by his Son. And the author's goal with these opening verses is to show how Christianity is better than or is superior to the older covenant. And loved ones, we need to understand as as we say that, that he's not saying the older covenant or what we sometimes refer to as the Old Testament is is bad or or wrong. That's not what he's saying by saying that the newer covenant that Christ brings is superior. He's not saying that the older covenant is bad or wrong. But his point is that it was incomplete, that it wasn't finished. It was just pieces of the puzzle, of the revelation. And with Christ, you and I now have the fullness of the revelation. And think about it this way. When God spoke to Adam after Adam and Eve sinned, God gave Adam and Eve a promise that he would send one who would crush the serpent. What did Adam and Eve know about redemption at that point? They knew that one would come who would defeat Satan and who himself would be bruised by Satan. That's what they knew about the coming Savior. And then, if we fast forward a bit through the Old Testament to Abraham, Abraham is given more revelation that this one who was to crush the serpent would be a son of Abraham. And by his ministry, he would bless the nations. And then we could fast forward a bit more, and we see that the promise is further extended, further revealed, As now Moses is is told that this one who is going to come, who is going to crush the serpent, who is going to be a son of Abraham, is also going to be a true prophet. More and more is being revealed over time. And then a promise is given to David that this one would also be a king. And through Isaiah we learn not only will he be a king, but he will be a suffering servant who would suffer for the sins of his people by taking their sins upon himself. See, loved ones, God spoke too. And through all these Old Testament saints in various ways, through dreams and visions and speaking directly to them. And so what we see is that they received this revelation that wasn't wrong, but it was fragmentary. It was incomplete. It was pieces of a puzzle. It was like a picture that was slowly being unrolled. If you think about a picture that is slowly being unrolled, you can start making the picture out, figuring it out, and then only when it's completely unrolled do you really see it completed. Do you see what is being displayed? This is how we can think about the comparison between the older covenant and the newer covenant that Christ brings. Richard Phillips writes, the Old Testament is unfulfilled. It expectantly longs for the answer 
that comes in Jesus Christ. It is promise that points to fulfillment. And so what we see with God's revelation that comes in Christ then is full. It's final and complete. That the Lord Jesus Christ is the reality of all the types and the shadows that the older covenant pointed to. That Christ, we see throughout the New Testament, that Christ has perfectly accomplished redemption. There's nothing left with regards to redemption for Christ to accomplish before the second coming. Loved ones, we are in the last days, is what we read, as we're hearing by these words. If they forsake Christ and return to the older covenant, see, they're not returning to something better, but they're returning to something that is less, to something that has passed, something that has been fulfilled, And the new, the greater, the reality is now here. And if they forsake that reality, they are returning but to a shadow. They are returning to something that has passed away. As Christ is the final prophet that reveals the completion of redemption. And not only is Christ the final prophet we read, but he is a better prophet because he is the son of God. We see here the comparison in how God spoke. At many times, in many ways, he spoke by the prophets, but the writer to the Hebrews says in verse 2, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. That's our second point. We read there the comparison between God the Son and the prophets of the Older Covenant. And what we see with the prophets of the Older Covenant is that they were many, as they were revealing more and more of God's plan of redemption as God was speaking through them. They were many, these prophets, but at the same time, they were imperfect. We know that when they spoke the word of God, they spoke sinful. We know that Moses killed a man. And that Isaiah when he was confronted by the holiness of God, even Isaiah realized his sinfulness as he confessed that he's a man of unclean lips and he lives among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah realized that he himself was imperfect and fallen. And consider Jonah. Jonah, who when he received the call of God, did not want to obey God's word, but instead fled the other way. But what we read is that when Christ, the final prophet, came, He was completely different from these older covenant prophets because he was wholly different. He is the one who had the spirit upon him and within him beyond measure, without measure, we read. He was holy. He was righteous. He was perfect. He was sinless. This is why John the baptizer said about Christ in John chapter 3, verses 34 through 36. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And then as we look at the following verses in Hebrews 
chapter 1, we see that now the writer gives us five important truths that exalt Christ and show his glory and his superiority over all. Christ is the Son of God, and as the Son of God, he is the heir of all things. We read there, whom he appointed the heir of all things. There is imagery here from the Old Testament, because we know from the Old Testament that in Israel, the firstborn son had the right of inheritance. And now as the Son of God, Jesus will inherit all things, all the universe, all things seen and unseen, because he is the Redeemer. We know from the covenant of redemption, that covenant that took place in eternity past between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Part of that covenant was Christ's willing obedience to fulfill the terms of that covenant. And by those terms, he became incarnate, He suffered humiliation, he died for our sins, and he was raised to glory. And the reward for his obedience is you and me and all of creation that he redeemed by his blood. This is what the Son inherits for his and by his work of redemption. One commentator, Philip Hughes, He writes that Christ's inheritance is the innumerable company of the redeemed and the universe renewed by virtue of his triumphant work of reconciliation. He is the heir of all things. We know whose we are, loved ones. We know whose we will be for an eternity because we are his. He has gained us by his work of redemption. Jesus is also, we read, the creator, verse 2, through whom he also created the world. That through the Son, God has made all that there is, all things seen and unseen. And the point here is that the Son is not created, but he is creator, That he is co-eternal with the Father. He is before all things. And through the Son, though Christ is not mentioned by name in the creation account in Genesis, chapter 1, we see that in that account that God created by speaking. He created all things by the action of his divine speech and then John, the gospel writer, explains to us that this word that was spoken in creation is actually Christ. That he is the word who then in the fullness of time became incarnate and ultimately accomplished our salvation through his work of obedience. So Jesus is the heir of all things. The writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus is the creator but also that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. This is part of him being the glorious Son of God. And he is the radiance of the glory of God. And glory in the Bible is the way in which God is revealed. All of his perfections, his, his attributes, his moral purity, all of these things combined together reveal his 
glory. And the writer of the Hebrews says that Jesus radiates this glory. That he doesn't merely reflect the glory of God like the moon reflects the light and the glory of the sun. But Jesus is the very radiance of God. And the important point here is that Jesus is not of a lesser glory than God. That he is not subordinate to God, but he is very God of very God. That he and the Father and the Spirit are equal in power and glory. The writer of the Hebrews continues and says that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature, verse 3. This reveals the Son's oneness with the Father, that he is equal with the Father and the Spirit, that he is one with the Father, but he is also, we read here, a distinct person. The word imprint in this verse refers to, and it's a great image, refers to a dye that is pressed onto wax or or onto soft metal. Like when they used to... uh, cast coins. And when the die is is pressed into a seal or a a wax seal or soft metal, an exact imprint is made of that die. That wax seal or coin now perfectly reveals the die. And in the same way, the Son perfectly reveals the Father. That Christ is the image of the invisible God, we read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus said... During his ministry, he said to his disciples these very words, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Why? Because he is the exact imprint of God's nature. And further, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is also the sustainer of the universe. In verse 3, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power that as the one through whom all things were made, he is also the one through whom all things hold together. We read these very words in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do you see the glorious sun that the writer to the Hebrews is holding up before us? The one whom, if we forsake him, we are not returning to something that is equal or to something that is better. But we are returning to something and turning towards something that is less, that is inferior, something that has passed away. The writer to the Hebrews continues, again, to give us his abstract, to hold the sun before us, by now saying that Jesus is also the perfect priest. This is a theme in the book of Hebrews that is going to be expounded at length throughout the rest of the letter as he says that this Son of God 
made purification for sins. He is writing to these Jewish Christians who were very, very familiar with the ceremonial laws, who were familiar to God repeatedly. And the writer to the Hebrews later in the letter is going to explain that by the very fact that these offerings had to be repeated over and over, revealed the fact that they were ineffective to actually remove sin from God's people. But the writer of the Hebrews compares the priesthood and those sacrifices to Christ, and he shows that when Christ began his work of redemption and completed it by his resurrection and ascension, when Christ did these things, he actually made purification for sins. He accomplished once for all the work of atonement, the work of redemption. We saw this clearly displayed for us in the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 15, verses 37 through 38, that when Jesus died on the cross, he uttered a loud cry, he breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple, we read, was torn in two from top to bottom. That curtain, says the writer to the Hebrews, is representative of the fact that by his work of obedience and his death on the cross, Jesus has provided a new and living way for us to God that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And by his work of redemption, he now allows us, causes us, to be able to draw near to God in assurance of faith. And lastly, we see in verse 3 that Christ is lifted up before us as the reigning king. That he sat down, we read, after purifying us from sin once for all, by his one sacrifice, he then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We know from the Old Testament that the right hand is the place of honor and power, to sit at the right hand of the king as to have a place of authority. And the majesty on high that we read here in verse 3 refers to God the Father and to the heavenly enthronement that Jesus received upon his ascension, that he was raised that he appeared to many, and that he ascended on high, and in his ascension, he was seated at the right hand and remained seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And from that place, loved ones, from that place of power and authority, from from that place of glory, he is the one who continues to sustain the universe, to reign over every single atom within his creation, to reign over all things, seen and unseen. And the writer of the Hebrews says, from that place of power and authority and of majesty, he continues as our great high priest to intercede for us. Loved ones, do you this morning feel 
overwhelmed by the greatness of our Savior. Overwhelmed by the way in which he is portrayed in these opening verses of the book of Hebrews. That is the goal of the writer. That is the desire of the Holy Spirit this morning, is to lift up the Savior for us to see, to see his glory and to see his majesty. This is our Savior, loved ones. This is the one whom we are to worship. This is the one whom we are to cling to, to find our refuge in him. Never turn aside, but to cling to him, knowing that he is the full and final revelation of God. That is the point of it all. The point of it all is for us to reply as the disciples did in John chapter 6. We read there in John chapter 6, verses 66 through 69, that after Jesus gave a very hard teaching to many that were following him, we read in verse 66 that many of his disciples, not of the twelve, but of those on the fringes who had been following him, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Go away as well. Do you want to forsake me? Do you want to stop following me? Do you also no longer want to believe? And our response, loved ones, this morning, our response should be that of Simon Peter, who answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Amen.